So Psalm 2. Why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are blessed. G'day. As Dan said, the reading from Acts is chapter 4, 1 to 31. That's on page 1005. So Acts 4, starting at verse 1. Now, as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were provoked that they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead using Jesus as the example. So they seized them and put them in custody until the next day, since it was almost evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men, the number of the men came to about 5,000. The next day their rulers, elders and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what, mean, by what means he was healed... Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people and we must be saved by it. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realised they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognised that they'd been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign evident to all who live in Jerusalem has been done through them and we cannot deny it. However, so this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in in this name again. 
So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You said through your Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, this city, both Herod and Pontius, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed this, when they had prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. the world watch list which ranks the top 50 countries where it is most difficult to be a christian this well-researched report is compiled by a group of experts audited by an outside organization specializing in religious freedom and it is credited as the best and most authoritative report of its kind through on the ground interviews and data analysis this list provides an accurate picture of the difficulties persecuted christians experience around the world the World Watch List looks at and measures the types of persecution believers experience from the government, community, and even their own families. It also looks into the restrictions Christians face in their private lives and their ability to meet and worship with other Christians. But the list is not just numbers and figures. It represents those who have decided to follow Jesus, no matter what the cost may be. In many countries, believers encounter intimidation, prison, or in some countries, even death. Persecution is a daily reality for millions of believers across the world. In 2014, Christians experienced intense persecution in a number of countries. In North Korea, which is ranked number one for 13 years in a row, it is estimated that 50 to 70,000 Christians are imprisoned for their faith. Iraq moved to number three on the list and has seen a mass exodus of Christians as a result of the Muslim extremist group, the Islamic State. It is estimated that 140,000 Christians have been displaced as a result. Nigeria's rank rose to number 10 for the first time ever. It is estimated that there have been an average of 10 people killed daily by the Islamic extremist group Boko Haram, and most are Christians. We invite you to learn more and pray for the millions of believers around the world where persecution is a reality.
feel watching that video and uh, after the reading we've just had from uh, Acts chapter 4, I wonder what your responses are. Maybe surprised by the figures and numbers. Maybe your heart goes out to those Christians who are being persecuted all around the world. I hope so. Maybe like me, you're somewhat impressed by them, um, that they're suffering for Jesus' sake, and yet they cling on to him, and they keep speaking of him, uh, like Peter and John. I don't know if it's just the, uh, the convict in me, uh, but I, I quite like the way that Peter and John just stick it to the authorities. You know that? Don't speak about Jesus. Oh, I think we will. Thanks very much. I like that. Maybe you notice the boldness of Peter and John, that perhaps the boldness of these Christians who are being persecuted, and you thought... I actually kind of want a bit of that. I I like what they're doing. I I, I want to be bold just like they are. Their boldness has got this kind of dangerous appeal to it, doesn't it? They've got these things that are kind of dangerous but somewhat appealing nonetheless. You know like the idea of standing up at work one day and shouting out to everyone, Everyone, I quit. I've just ordered a ticket to Barbados. Bon voyage. Dangerous appeal, this idea. Streaking at the cricket, maybe. Maybe less appealing. I don't know. But dangerous appeal. Those sorts of things, they come from a brain snap. But speaking boldly for Jesus comes from a very sane place. It comes from a very clear conviction of how things really are in this world. That Jesus is Lord, and we as his people ought to speak for him. But we need boldness for that, don't we? Where is that boldness going to come from? Where did that boldness come for Peter and John in our reading today? Well, that's actually the question I want to get at tonight. Where did their boldness come from? What was it that they believed or or thought or were convicted of that enabled them to have voice, to speak for Jesus? And can we learn from that? I want to point out four things tonight, reasons that Peter and John were bold. Perhaps we can get on board with those things as well. Uh, The first thing is this. Peter and John were bold because they knew that the evidence about Jesus could be ignored, but it couldn't be denied. The evidence about Jesus could be ignored, but it couldn't be denied. For the last couple of chapters, we've been hearing about how Jesus was raised to life and that the apostles are witnesses of that. And the opponents had no answer to that. They couldn't deny it. So again, in chapter 5, verse 30, Peter says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. There was no way of denying the evidence for the resurrection, but people could ignore it. But here in this chapters 4 and 5, the focus is not so much just on resurrection, but on the fact that Jesus is still at work. He's still at work in his, in a, in his world. You might remember the context we looked at last week, that Peter and John have healed this lame man, um, and, and the people around were amazed. As they came flocking in, and Peter started to explain what was going on. Um, he said, this man's been healed in the name of Jesus. Jesus is alive. Now, the Jewish authorities didn't like that. They didn't like what was being said. And so they arrested Peter and John, threw them in prison, and then the next day brought them out to trial. 
And their big question, the way they began, is in chapter 4 and verse 7. Peter and John are facing the council. And after they'd had Peter and John stand before them, verse 7, they asked them the question, By what power or in what name have you done this? Do you think that was a real question? Do you think they knew what Peter and John were going to say? They knew these guys were Jesus guys. They knew they were going to say Jesus, but they couldn't accept it. It couldn't be true. It couldn't be Jesus. But that's exactly what Peter goes on to say. Verse 8 and 9 and 10, he says, you need to know that actually uh, the name by which this man was healed is the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you killed by God raised to life. So that's, that's what's going on. They've said, by what name have you done this? Peter and John say, the name of Jesus. How do they respond? Look with me at verse 13, chapter 4 and verse 13, to hear their response, what they do with the evidence. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, Peter and John are standing before this quite imposing council, but they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed. Peter had spoken like he was a trained rabbi. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. There's some connection between this amazing boldness and Jesus. What should the conclusion be? Well, let's see. Let's go on. And there's more evidence. Verse 14. Since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in response. They can't deny it. And they tell us that themselves. Verse 15 and 16, after they'd ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred amongst themselves, saying, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign evident to all who live in Jerusalem has been done through them. So we can't deny it. What are we going to do? We can't deny it. What are we going to do? What's it, where's all the evidence pointing? I'll tell you what we'll do. Verse 17. However, so this doesn't spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them. Yes, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone else in this name again. They don't deal with the evidence. They don't, can't do anything about it. So we'll just kind of ask them to shut up and we'll threaten them. You ever experienced that before? You're kind of talking with someone and someone in a bit of power perhaps and, and you've got them cornered with your argument, whatever it is about, but they won't give in. They won't, they won't actually say, oh, you're right, I'm wrong. They'll kind of just threaten instead. Like the cornered beast just fights. You should be careful who you're talking to. I can do bad things to you or something. This is these religious leaders. They can't deny the evidence, so they ignore it. And threaten. But I want to drill down a little bit more. Because, because why do they ignore it? The answer is there in chapter 5 verse 17. Would you turn there with me? Chapter 5 verse 17. The answer is they've got a lot to lose if Jesus is Lord. Then the high priest took action. These guys were getting very popular. So the high priest took action. He and all his colleagues, those who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Everyone's going after them. They're following Jesus and his apostles. And these guys who had all the power were losing their following. 
Losing their position, losing their power. People in power don't like to lose, don't like to change the status quo. So perhaps you know that as well. You know that people in power who have it all don't want the status quo to change. They, they don't want to hear about Jesus because if he's Lord, things have got to change and they don't want things to change. Let me, let me try to draw this back together and say this. Peter and John have boldness because they're on the side of history and truth. People might want to ignore the truth, the evidence, but they can't deny it. Brothers and sisters, I want to say that you too are on the side of history and truth. So stand firm, be bold. Sure, people out there might ignore the evidence, they might try to reject it, but you're standing on history, you're standing on truth. It's very hard to deny the history about Jesus and Christianity. People might not accept it, but that doesn't make it untrue. Jesus truly is alive. He is truly in, at work in his world today. So stand with that. Stand with Jesus. You stand on the side of history and truth. So be bold. That's the first reason Peter and John are bold, I think. The second thing is this. Peter and John realized that if you did not trust in Jesus, you're not one of God's people. If people don't accept Jesus, they're not one of his people, so they're bold. This section of Acts is, is a massive moment, actually. It's this first moment of great persecution. And what's going to happen between Acts uh, kind of uh, 3 through to 8 is this persecution in Jerusalem is going to intensify and intensify and then sort of explode out everywhere. And then persecution will follow the church wherever it grows, right through to today, as we've just seen. And this is where it all begins. Um, I'm sure you've heard of um, families having really ugly arguments, perhaps around inheritance or something like that. Um, I want you just to imagine for a moment um, this strange younger brother who's grown up with this family, um, but he's never really gotten on with the family. And then when the feud kind of heats up and things heat up in the family, the rest of the family says to the, the younger brother, they say, you're not really part of our family. Get out of it. You're not really part of us. And, and the younger brother turns around and says, you know what? No, no, you are part of the family. And he's got really good reasons to say that. Just keep that in your head. Jesus and, and the early Christians were Jewish, part of the family. And yet, and yet the rest of the family, the Jewish leaders, couldn't acknowledge Jesus and his followers. And so they start pushing Jesus and his followers to the edge of the family. You guys are on the outside. You've got to get out of here. But then Peter and John turn around and actually say, it's you guys who aren't part of the family. Do you read chapter, uh, Psalm 2 that Anup read to us earlier? It's this hugely important psalm for the Jews, for God's people. There's this great hope that the, the, the Messiah will come, the King will come, and he will rule the world. And all of God's people will rule with him. And if any enemies try to come against him, he will shatter them like pottery. Smash. God's people will rule with him. It's a great hope. But did you see what the Christians did with it? 
chapter 4 and verse 25. Follow that with me. They're praying to God and they say, You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, and here he's quoting Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed one. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, you Jewish leaders... You're actually the enemies of the Messiah. You thought he was going to reign and you were going to get swept up in this great victory of the Messiah, but you're on the other team. The Jewish leaders are on the other team. Like, this is like saying to the Pope that he's, he's not a Catholic. It's like saying to ISIS, you guys aren't Muslim. He's saying to the leaders of Israel, you guys aren't really Israel. Your great hope, Psalm 2, you're not part of it. In fact... You're the guys who are going to be shattered like pottery. This is a massive moment in Acts. The dividing of the ways between, uh, between the Christians and the Jews. So he says, chapter 4 and verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people and we must be saved by it, by the name of Jesus. If you don't acknowledge him, the son, you've missed it. You're not one of God's people. And so Peter and John are bold to speak about Jesus because they believe this. They believe there is salvation in no one else because you're, they believe that your family and friends don't have any salvation except for Jesus. If they don't accept him, they are not God's people. Peter and John believed this, and so they spoke. Do you believe it? It's hard to take. It's absolute. It's narrow. That's what it says. There's salvation in no one else. I watched a video just this last week of... Um, uh, a Christian church planter in uh, rural Vietnam. His name was David. Um, and he was one day dragged out of his house by these tribal leaders. Um, and they dragged his family out as well. And, and they made his family uh, watch as they beat him. Uh, in his words, from morning till evening. Um, they beat his pregnant wife so that she lost her child. They beat him until his eye came out. And this wasn't a one-off. And yet David keeps on preaching Jesus. And now his son John is preaching Jesus and planning churches with him. Why? Why would you do that? Where does the boldness come from? Listen to the words of John, his son. Because we believe for sure that only the Lord Jesus can save our lives. That's what Peter and John believed. There is only one name. There is only one king. So we must preach him. 
There's no other option. I don't know if you're sitting here this evening, this sounds very narrow. Perhaps you don't yet know Jesus. I want to say to you, that name is there for you. The Lord God has provided his son, the name of Jesus. His arms are open to receive you, to give you life and forgiveness. But there is no other name. Brothers and sisters, your family and friends have no other name to call upon. And we have boldness to speak that name to them. There's a third reason why Peter and John are bold. The third reason is Peter and John are bold because they realize that human authorities are provisional. Human authorities out there are provisional. They're not ultimate. God is in control and Jesus is his king. So come with me to chapter 4 and verse 5. The next day, uh, oh, sorry, I just want to point out that Luke is saying the things the way he is saying them to make this very clear. The human authorities are not in control. Let's read. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem, the whole crew, with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. Here they are in their pomp and glory and power. And how's it end up? Verse 21. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them. They got nothing. They kind of end this great scene of power by going, stop it. You know, like your little sister. Stop it. I'll pull your hair. Chapter 5. Come on with me. Chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. So they, the chief priests, arrested the apostles and put them in the city jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night and said, keep on preaching. Who's in control here? Reading a little bit further down, just after the second half of verse 21. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full senate of the sons of Israel, And they sent orders to the jail to have them brought. And when the temple police got there, they didn't find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, "Uh, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the commander of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them as to what could come of this. I love this scene, great power and pomp. And then they're kind of standing around going, What's going on? I don't really, what's, do you know what's going on? I don't know what's going on. What happened? And it's shown to be totally out of control. Friends, Peter and John are aware of this. That there is an authority greater than any human authority. That's why they're bold. Did you notice when they were under the pump of these Jewish leaders, the, the way they go home and they pray? Did you know chapter 4, verse 24? Would you look at that with me? Just look at how they address their God. Verse 24, when they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You are creator 
These people threatening us, they're creatures. They've got nothing on you. And you notice the, the word they called him? They called him master. That's the word. That's, it's literally the word despot. It's ruler, supreme ruler, our owner. It's you, God. It's not them. And so Peter and John are bold because they get this. And because they get this, they don't always obey human authorities, do they? Look with me at verse 18, chapter 4, verse 18. So they called for Peter and John and ordered them not to speak, preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Guys, whether it's right in the sight of God or us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. You can tell us what you like. We've got to listen to God. And then over in chapter 5, verse 27. After they had brought Peter and John in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Didn't we give you an order? Look, you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you're determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. There's nothing to it. Like, we just got to obey God, not men. And I love the way this scene ends. Would you flick over to, to verse 40? The Sanhedrin keep trying to impose their authority. Verse 40, after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus again <laughs> and released them. And then verse 42, how do the apostles respond? Well, every day in the temple co complex and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Total disobedience. <laughs> I love that. Now, I've got to be clear here. Uh, the government is good. Anarchy is not good. We're to pray for the government. We're on board with the government. Um, ISIS this week, I was reading about ISIS. Uh, they uh, will not obey any law unless it's from the Quran. We're quite different. We'll obey any law unless it's contradicted by Jesus. Government's good. But it's provisional. It's not the ultimate authority. And so here's the question. This is where it gets a little bit pointy. What are you going to do when the Australian government clamps down on freedom of speech and we're not allowed to speak about Jesus anymore? Might not happen. We're kind of headed that direction though, aren't we? Can't really speak about Jesus in schools, kind of getting him out of most things. My friend's the uh, chaplain of Macquarie University, and a guy just about three weeks ago uh, was escorted off campus by security guards because he was talking about Jesus. That, that's our country. That's where we're going. So friends, if and when we are no longer allowed to speak to others about Jesus, what are you going to do? Are you going to obey? Or is this a time for civil disobedience? And this, of course, is not just theoretical for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. I mean, I know we're not apostles. We're not commanded to preach necessarily. But we are called to be bold. 
to not deny Jesus, to not be ashamed of him, to give answer when we're asked. I want to stretch this a little bit, actually. Because government's not our only authority, is it? You've got your boss at work. Do they let you speak about Jesus? Does your boss ever ask you to do things that are perhaps a little bit dodgy? Are you going to obey? Or our culture. Culture is, is it's an authority, isn't it? It's this very invasive authority that tells you what you can think and what you can do and what you can wear and what you should buy. And culture says, don't talk about Jesus. You don't want to talk about Jesus. What are you, some kind of weirdo? Don't talk about Jesus. Are we going to obey God or men? Are you going to obey the government, your boss, culture, or God? Brothers and sisters, we have an authority above us that is way beyond human authority. Jesus makes all human authority provisional. And so we are called to not be afraid of it. Let's be bold and to speak, to obey God. Well, we didn't get the chance to read this whole section, like I said. We didn't get the chance to read about the guy in 533 called Gamaliel. But he nails this issue for us. And so I just want to mention him quickly. Gamaliel is a Pharisee and he's sitting there in the Sanhedrin. And when the rest of the Sanhedrin goes, I rate and wants to kill Peter and John, Gamaliel says, hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Let these guys go. Because if what they're on about is from men, it'll fizzle and die. But if what they're on about is from God, you don't want to be fighting against God. I reckon he nails it. The question is, God or man? Is Jesus from God or man? Is he the Messiah, the Lord, the King of all, or is he a man? You know, a good man, a wise man, but just a man. You might be here this evening and you're not sure about the answer to that question. You're still thinking about it. Please keep thinking about it. Especially consider the resurrection of Jesus. But if you're here this evening and you are convinced, yes, Jesus is from God. He is my Lord. He is my King then let's speak. Let's open our mouths and be bold. And I'm saying that to me as much as I'm saying it to you. Because we are on the side of history and truth. People might ignore the evidence. It's still true. If people don't have Jesus, they're not his people. There's only one savior. We've got to speak to them. And finally, let's not be afraid of any authority because we have authority above all human authority, the Lord Jesus, risen and ruling. I wonder if this week you might consider praying that you'd be able to talk about Jesus every day, to one person every day. Would you do that? At the beginning, I did say I had four reasons why we should be bold, and I haven't said the fourth one, so I'm going to say it quickly. The fourth reason is this, because all this work is God's work. God is the one who is behind his word going forward. When you open your mouth, God is behind that. So God was the one who actually 
opened the prison so that Peter and John could go free. God was the one who told them, go and preach. God was the one who gave his spirit so that Peter would speak boldly. God was the one who gave his spirit to all of his followers that they might speak boldly for him. Boldness doesn't just come from knowing all these things I've mentioned. It doesn't just come from believing these things. It is a gift of his spirit, his spirit of boldness, of love. And so we ought to pray. And I'm going to do that now. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world which is still raging against your son, the king. Father, we live in a world that is so desperately needs to know the life of your son, your king, our king. And so, Father, we do pray that by your grace, you would fill us with boldness. Give us conviction of these truths, the truths that Peter and John were convicted of. May we be convinced and may we be filled by your spirit so that we might speak boldly. Father, we each have people in our lives who desperately need to know your son. We pray that this week you might give us opportunities to open our mouths to speak of them of your son. We pray you do great things through us by your spirit for the glory of your son and the good of your people. Amen.